All right, good morning. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 22, we'll be looking starting there at the, the last verse of the chapter, Acts chapter 22, verse 30, and we'll go through chapter 23, verse 22. 22, verse 30 through 23, 22, we're in the midst of a narrative section here, and really in the midst of Paul in Jerusalem, having returned, and we continue, and this is just picking up with one full story, Paul having been arrested uh, in Jerusalem after a major controversy erupted and chaos ensued, the Jews seeking to kill him because of his taking the gospel to the Gentiles, threats going against him, false accusations flying he has already been beaten once, and now they go to flog him. The Romans go to flog him, and he claims his citizenship, which is illegal for the Romans to flog a Roman citizen without any trial or any charges having been levied against him. So they cease from beating him, and they put him in the prison again. And so it says there on verse 30, it picks up with the Apostle Paul uh, the next day after our previous here almost been beaten claiming his Roman citizenship. It picks up here on the next day and we will look to what happens next. So just a continual day after day here over the last three chapters and we'll look together at this. So I want to read it. If you have your Bibles, follow along with me there. If you, if you do not, I think it'll be on the screen and you can follow along there. It says in chapter 22, verse 30, But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. 
When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were many, or there were more than 40, who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask, ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and the truth that it contains for us. Help us today as we look to your word to learn from it, to grow in it, and to trust you more. Father, for you make promises to us and you keep those promises every day, all the time. And so God, we are thankful for this day as we gather together in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if y'all are aware of this. It feels like life just keeps happening. It speeds up as you get older. I'm just letting you know that. We are only five weeks away from Easter. And so as we look coming toward Easter of 2024, one of my favorite things to do is kind of prepare myself for Easter. So every year I take a book and I, I read uh, just a book that leads up to the cross and the resurrection. And oftentimes I read the same book. I'll just kind of read through it. One of my favorites, and I could commend it to you, is F.W. Krumacher. F.W. Krumacher has a book called The Suffering Savior. And in this book, he walks us through Christ's suffering all the way to the cross. And he deals with that last week of his life. Now, I start five weeks away because it's a long book. But as I read through this, I'm always just struck at what Jesus went through for us, right? And especially as I find the interest in those, those times of the trials and other things that he goes through. Well, I'm reminded as I read this passage of John chapter 18. In John chapter 18, Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And as Jesus is questioning them, he says to the high priest, I have spoken openly to the world. In other words, Jesus has not hidden anything. He's on trial for something. He said, everything I believe, I've spoken openly. I've said nothing in secret, he says to them. So why are you asking me what I taught? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. That was Jesus' response. I've lived my life openly. I've taught clearly. I've spoke, spoken clearly. And anyone who has heard me knows what it is that I have been teaching. And immediately, 
immediately the high priest orders Jesus to be struck in the mouth. Immediately one of the officers strikes him. And he says, is that how you talk to the high priest? The trial that Jesus faced going to the cross, we find almost exactly the same situation here in our passage. Jesus had told his disciples, if you're speaking of the promises of God, he had told them, look, they hate me, they're going to hate you. And in this same way, Paul is a witness for the gospel. And what he is receiving, what he is receiving even at this time, is exactly what Jesus had to face. And in Paul this morning, what I want to do in this trial, what happens here in Paul's trial, teaches us, I think, some very important lessons as we look to the scriptures this morning, especially as we think what it means to be a faithful witness for the Lord. The first thing I want to point out from this, from this passage is this, everyone, and, and, and if you're writing that down, you don't have to, I didn't see any of y'all write, everyone, circle that one, everyone will have to answer to the Lord. Everyone will have to answer to the Lord. Jesus said in his trial that he had lived and taught in the open, no secret. That's exactly what Paul says. As Paul is faced here in this little trial, and we could call it a, a pre-trial, if you will, as the Sanhedrin council has gathered together. Remember, this Roman tribune is trying to figure, figure all this out. He, he had seen this. They thought Paul was this this assassin from Cairo, from Egypt that had come down. They thought Paul was, was doing something else here by bringing in Gentiles. None of that proved to be true. So, so really this Roman tribune is still trying to figure out what is it that they're so mad about? Why is it that they hate this guy so much and want to kill him? So he's still trying to get it. So he says, look, this is your, this is your thing. He says to the Sanhedrin, you need to tell me what's going on. I don't have clarity here, so you need to tell me. So he sends Paul to the Sanhedrin, and Paul, surely relishing in this opportunity, now he gets to speak to the Sanhedrin as he's there before them. He looks intently at the council. He says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul is saying the same thing Jesus has said, I have lived in the open I've lived in the open, but Paul ramps it up a little more. Paul says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. I've said this on many occasions, and it's something I do not think we need or should forget in any way. That we live our life before an audience of one. That all that we do and all that we say and everything that we are and everywhere we go, every thought even that comes into our head, all of those things are done before a God who sees all and knows all. The moment we think we live in secret, the moment we think we can hide something is the moment we begin that downward path to nothing but trouble, if you know what I mean. The moment you put it away is the moment you begin to weave this little tangled web that you're seeking to deceive someone into something. And so your idea that you could live your life and get away with sin or get away with any of those things, it's a false narrative in your head. You live your life before God and he knows and sees all things. 
And so Paul says, I have lived my life before God. He knows what I believe. He knows what I have taught. He knows what I have seen. And what Paul is really saying here, and we'll get to this in a second, what Paul is really saying here is this, you guys can sit here in judgment before me, but understand I have a greater judge to answer to. Really matters here is what God thinks about him. What really matters is not this ruling that's going to come down from the Sanhedrin. What really matters is what the Lord thinks of himself. And Paul said he has a good conscience. Now let's take note for a minute of what the conscience is, right? It's important to note that the conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. Your conscience does not determine whether actions are morally right or wrong. We think of it that way, right? We, well, it's my conscience speaking. That doesn't. For example, Paul's conscience before had, had once permitted him to persecute Christians and even oversee their death. He, he felt like he was right in that at one time. So I'm sure he sat well with his conscience. Our conscience is the faculty that passes judgment on our actions, on a person's moral actions. But that can only be based on the highest standards of morality and conduct perceived by that person or individual at that time. In other words, if we are measuring our morality and our actions by the actions of others, then quite often our conscience will be appeased. If we're measuring on some standard that is in this world, then surely we can look at them and say, well, I'm doing better than they are. I feel good about who I am and what I am doing. If we're measuring it on our highest sense of morality and it's only what this world has to offer, then our conscience can be fine and we can lay our head on the pillow and everything will be okay. But in reality, we are deceiving ourselves. We're receiving ourselves. This is why, by the way, your parents always ask you the question, why did you do that, right? That's a conscience question. Why did you do that? And when you say, because Jimmy did it, what's their response? If Jimmy jumped off the mountain bridge, would you jump off the mountain, right? Is that your measurement? Is that where you go? If he would have done that or if she did that and you, that's how you measure your thing. If that's the case, then you can do some dumb stuff and your conscience feel good about it. Your conscience can feel good about it. But Paul says here that he had a good conscience. The Bible actually does commend a good conscience. It says that we should have a clear conscience in some places. It says we should have a blameless conscience conscience. And yes, as Paul says, a good conscience. The Christian, our conscience that we have must be informed by the standard, not of this world, but of the word of God. It must be informed by the standard of the word of God. And as we as believers intake the word and it informs our conscience of what is right and wrong, we are able to accurately assess our actions according to God's moral standards according to his word. So we strengthen our consciences by constantly exposing them to the truths of Scripture, to the truths of God's word. And living with Scripture-informed consciences allows us to live before God with a clear conscience, with a good conscience, with a blameless conscience. So Paul says, I have 
seen and known the Lord, and I'm living according to his standards and to his word, and when I'm doing this, then your judgments do not matter to me because I'm judged by one who is greater. I'm judged by one who is greater. So he, as he begins his trial or pre-trial, whatever it may be, he's saying, your ruling does not matter at all. God judges me. And before my great judge, I have a good conscience. No wonder they slap him. No wonder they strike him, right? Just like they did Jesus before. Paul is getting to the very heart of their authority in his life. Yes, he must answer to them at this moment, but ultimately he answers to God. He's getting to the very heart of their authority. So they slap him, for he has usurped the high priest's judgment. Paul pronounces his judgment first. Once they slap Paul, obviously he responds quickly and strong in verse 3. They strike him, and God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. I'm assuming that whitewashed wall is a good cut down back in those old days. <laughs> but it has a very intense meaning here. Ananias, the high priest, Paul is saying, listen, God is going to judge you too. Paul is putting himself saying, look, I stand before the Lord and I'm in good conscience because I have been informed by his word and his truth and I live for him. And you, God is going to judge you too, Ananias. You stand here and you pronounce your judgments on me, but you need to recognize there is one who will judge you. And you look clean on the outside. You're whitewashed. You look smooth. You dress to the nines. You've got all the accessories in the right place. You have, you have everything that this world looks at and says, this one, this one's got it in order. But inside you are dead. You're dead. Paul is different. Paul claims he has a good conscience. Inside, he feels alive in the Lord, in Christ. So he is living for him. And no one, Paul is saying, no one will escape the judgment that is coming. And Paul is ready to stand before God in a good conscience. Are you ready, Ananias? You whitewashed wall. Are you ready? The high priest ordered Paul struck contrary to the law, by the way. So he's going to have to answer here already. He's made a, a false judgment. Now, after Paul responds, the other question has to come up. Did you not know you're speaking to the high priest? After Paul shoots back, the Lord is going to strike you too. Do you not know you're speaking to the high priest? Would you revile God's high priest? So Paul responds, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written. Paul's response is to saying, I, I, I uphold the law. I see it written there. I, I got it. I, I will respond. And I didn't know. Now, the question comes, <clears throat> as you kind of read through this, what's Paul saying here as he does it? Is Paul being sincere? Maybe the high priest didn't have on his garments. They had been called in by the Roman tribune, and, and Paul hadn't met the high priest Ananias, and, and maybe he, he didn't really know. He, didn't, he wasn't set aside, if you will, or recognized because he didn't have his high priestly garments on. Maybe Paul was being sincere and saying, I didn't know. Maybe Paul was being sarcastic. He could have very well been being sarcastic. Oh, you're the high priest, huh? 
Real high priest would not have ordered me to be struck, in other words. You should know the law. So I don't know if Paul's being sincere or sarcastic. I'm going to go ahead and let y'all know that if I'm voting, I'm voting for sarcastic. But Paul is being clear here that his, with his point to be made. Everyone will have to answer to the one judge. And for those that do not know him, this should be taken with great fear and trembling. I want to point just for the sake of time, let's just scoot over to the book of Revelation. I know all of you love it when we turn to Revelation. Chapter 6. In Revelation chapter 6, the seven seals are being opened. And in some, I think maybe rightfully so, the proper interpretation here are these seals are speaking toward history. They're pointing toward times and epochs in history, if you will. And then you get to the sixth seal and it's looking to the future judgment that is coming. And so as you work through these epochs of time, you get to this sixth one and it's now pointing to the future judgment. And so as... John has this revelation that has come to him. The sixth seal is being opened. And he says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. In other words, when the judgment of God comes, all of the cosmic order will have to respond. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful. So he begins with this order of those who were the highest and the greatest. The kings, the, uh, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful. And then he moves on down from there. And everyone slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So as the revelation comes, John sees into the future and he sees when the judgment of God who sits on the throne, it speaks of his throne here, when he who sits on the throne and, and is from the throne that the ruling is made, is from the throne that the judgment comes, when this one who is seated on the throne comes, people will be in such clamor to run to the mountains and they say to the mountains, I'd rather be crushed by you than have to face this one that's the judgment that's coming i'd rather be crushed by the rocks of this mountains than to have to face face the wrath of the lamb when we think of lambs we do not think of wrath right we think of gentleness we think of easy going but here He's saying the one who died for us, the lamb, will also sit in judgment over us for rejecting him. And so he speaks of the judgment. They run. The kings run. The great ones run. The high priest runs and says, fall on us, mountains. We don't want to face this one. 
everyone will have to face the judgment of God. Now, I don't know about y'all, but when I read that, I feel, no pun intended, the weight of this passage. When he's saying everyone, if we believe the scriptures, then he's saying everyone will face the judgment of God. And this judgment will be so great, so powerful, so intimidating and fearsome that we would rather have mountains crush us. How do we get out of that, right? If your first question is not, how do I get away from that? Now, you may sit here and think, you know what? I don't believe that. That's nonsense. That's no way that it's going to happen like that. Well, well, if you don't believe that passage, and I don't know how you can believe this passage or the passage that says Jesus saves us from this sin, right? Because if that's, that's what he's saying and what he's doing, what, what happens here is how do we get out of that judgment that is coming? How do we live with a good conscience before God so that we can say to ourselves, we are, we are safe in him? Because the scriptures tell us that he is a cleft in the rock where we hide. Not going to the mountain and saying in that cleft, fall on us and crush us but going to the mountain and finding our safety there. How do we get that? How do we get away from that judgment? Paul here is ultimately not the one on trial. The gospel is. For Paul turns it here when he gets to verse 6. We're going to see how we get out of this judgment. On this council were Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were conservative. They were silently, of course, they had to be silently, anti-Roman. They were very much pro-Israel. They were very much for their people. And so they're conservative in this way. That's what Paul was. He even tells them, I was a Pharisee. I was one of you. The Sadducees were progressive. They were the aristocracy. They they were the ones who were pro-Rome, if you will. They They were enjoying that. And the Pharisees and Sadducees disagree on a lot of different things, especially theology. And here it tells us in verse in chapter 23, verse 8, that their big major difference was in their belief in the ability or possibility of the resurrection. For the Sadducees says that there is, say that there is no resurrection. So Paul, Paul in a, a genius move now as he's on trial, demonstrates to them how they don't even know the truth. When Paul says, I am on trial today, not because of anything else other than I preach and believe in the resurrection. I'm on trial for that. The Sadducees say that's not even a possibility. The Pharisees says, oh yes, it can happen. I'm on trial because I believe in resurrection, in the resurrection. For Paul, he lays this out and then immediately this shifts. The conversation changes here. The council becomes one that fights against each other. In fact, it tells us that they had to be separated or Paul had to be pulled out by force because it became violent in verse 10 as they began to disagree on this issue of the resurrection. Paul had adeptly shifted the conversation and shown the council that they had many differences and at the same time he brought it to the central point, the resurrection. Paul says, this is what it's really all about. If you want to know why I'm before you, it's because I believe and proclaim that Jesus Christ whom you murdered and you killed, as Peter says in chapter 2, is now alive. He's alive. And now we start to get the picture for Paul. 
If judgment is coming to us all, how is it that we will escape this judgment? How is it that we will be free from this judgment and find peace in God? It all comes down to what we believe about the resurrection. Young or old, rich or poor, it all comes down to what you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If the judgment is coming and it is sure, then what you believe about this one thing matters as to whether you will cry out for the rocks to fall on you or you will hide in the safety and surety of the Lord. Paul had just written to the Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from Revelation chapter 6. Saved from the judgment and wrath of God. For now there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You will be saved from that judgment and wrath. So as Paul looks at this Ananias here, what he's saying to him is this. Today, I stand before you as one who is bound, one who is on trial. But what you need to know is you are the one on trial with your life. I stand before you in good conscience because I believe that Jesus Christ not only died, but he rose again and that he is the one who reigns and rules. And I answer to him, what do you believe, Ananias? What do you believe, counsel? What do you hold to? Because the judgment of God is coming. And unless you believe that Jesus Christ is the one who's been raised now, that judgment hangs over your head as well. What do you believe? The dissension became violent. They snuck Paul out again. We today live before an audience of one. And as we live before the Lord, we want to live in good conscience with his word determining and, and directing us in how we go. So we pour his word into our hearts and into our lives so that we can live in good conscience for him so that we can be saved from the wrath that is to come by trusting in Christ and having our sins forgiven. And not only can he save us from that, that one who came for us, died and rose again. That one when we believe and trust in him for life and salvation is also the one who will protect his people until the day he calls them home. For as Paul is taken away, it says in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him. We've seen God's protection. We've seen his protection in the Old Testament. We got the great cloud the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that protects the people of God from the Egyptians that are coming after them that leads them on we've seen the armies there for Elijah whenever he says open his eyes and let him see the protection of God as the armies appear around his enemies we have seen how the Lord stops the mouths of lions protecting Daniel in that den and we've seen how he walks among the three young ones there uh, Shadrach Meshach and Abednego keeping them safe even even in the fiery furnace, throughout the scriptures, we have seen how God protects his people. And as I've said a million times, I say it again, that all of us who are children of God need to recognize that we are immortal until Jesus calls us home. No one can take our life from us. The Lord is the one who holds our life in our hands. And so 
It cannot be removed. So we go into life knowing that we are in his hands and he is the one who will protect us. He's the one who will keep us. So we see this protection for Paul. Maybe in a more ordinary way. Maybe in a more regular way we see it here. We see it in verse 11. The protection is promised. When Paul is here in this place, and, and surely Paul was, was un, uh, unsure of the future. He, he had a desire to go to Rome. That was what he was after. But man, the last few days have been rough. He had been beaten. He'd been pulled out. He'd been thrown back into it. He'd been pulled back out of it. Over and over again, he had to deal with it. So when Paul comes, surely he's waiting in captivity, not knowing what will come. Will he ever get to Rome? And Paul even admits Paul even admits, and I like it when some of our biblical characters here kind of open up their hearts, he even admits to the Corinthians, I have a constant anxiety, he says, dealing with what's coming. And he, he wrote this on, in this way, not, not a fear of what's coming, but how will it come? How is it going to take place? And so at that moment, surely when Paul was feeling the weight of the intensity of the time, the Lord appears to him. And the Lord always appears and comes to his people right on time. And he stood by him. That's intimate language. The Lord is coming alongside. He's standing by him, right? The Lord stood by him. And there he gives him a promise. Take courage. For as I've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. The promise for Paul is you're not going to die here. The promise for Paul is you're going to make it to Rome. He, he gives him some comfort here. You need to know and comforting and, 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 and recognize now Paul will end up being, being martyred later. But God is saying it's not now. And there's a comfort in that for Paul because he has a desire, as he said, as the Spirit has shown him to get to Rome. And so Paul is going in this and the Lord is comforting him with his promises. With his promises. Now, isn't it true? If you are a child of God today, one of the great and glorious things the Lord gives to us as his people are his promises, right? Uh, I rem one, one little book is called A Checkbook in the Bank of Faith. And what it is, is, is whenever you need something, a promise of God, he opened up this little devotional that lays out a promise every day. And that's like a, writing a check. I, I, I need the promises of God. They help get me through today. They help secure me. In fact, it's the promises of God that I hold fast to. Not only has he saved me in Christ, but he has saved me so that he will bring me safely home. That's a promise, right? It's a promise that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. It's a promise that everything that happens to me is happening but for my good. These are promises that come to us. And if you're a child of God and you know how precious the promises of God are in our life, surely it was precious for Paul. Paul is trusting in the Lord as his judge and savior. And now he's comforted in the Lord as his keeper and protector. But more than just comfort, Paul needs courage. And so as the Lord stands beside Paul, he says, take courage. This book sets the stage for the rest of the book of Acts. From, from here, this, this little, excuse me, this verse sets the stage. From this verse now, Paul will be removed out of Jerusalem and, and go toward Rome. 
Paul has a clear conscience. He's living for the Lord. He's found comfort in his promises and courage and strength to continue. And all of those things can only truly come from God himself. And the Lord provides them all for his believer. The Lord gives these things that we long for, we need, the comfort that we need, we find in his word and his truth and his promises. The courage we need for every day we find in his word and in his truth and in his promises. And what we see here is this verse 11, we, Paul gets exactly what he needs, this daily dose, if you will, this, this shot in the arm of encouragement to keep going. But then we find that that protection is not just promised, it's delivered on. Paul's nephew pops onto the scene here. The next little passage, the Jews recognize that the Romans aren't going to let him at Paul, so now they've got to figure out a plot, a conspiracy, how much they, they hate Paul and his message of resurrection in Christ. And so now they have this conspiracy to kill him. So 40 of them come together. Here's the plan. They got this conspiracy. Let's get these. They tell the Sanhedrin, here's what we're going to do. Let's bring him in, and they're going to do it. Paul's nephew comes along here. And it tells us that he's the son of Paul's sister. He heard, he goes, he tells Paul, he's going to go and tell the Romans. Now, in the Old Testament, we saw God's protection in some incredible ways. We saw it in angel armies around the mountain. We saw it in the, the fire. We saw it in the, the stopping the mouths of lions. We saw miraculous things. What we see in this passage, though, is a less miraculous experience. But no more different than before. For in the providential care of God, how he orders and keeps all things, he is going to protect Paul just as much as he protected Daniel. Just as much as he protected Elisha and his cupbearer. Just as much as he protected those saints in the Old Testament. Miraculous ways, he's going to protect Paul in this very normal, ordinary, everyday way. His nephew hears. He goes and tells. The Romans get word of it. And the Romans are like, we can't have this Roman citizen dying under our watch through some conspiracy with the Jews. We have got to get him out of here. And that's how it ends. Tell no one that you've informed me of these things. From that point on, they've got to figure out how to get Paul out of Jerusalem. The Lord is in control of all things. And when I say all things, I mean all things. And if he's not in control of all things, then the promise that he gives us when he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. If God's not in control of all things, then that promise itself is hollow. He's hoping they work together for all good, maybe. He's, he's hoping he can get it everything all right for his people. Maybe if, if, if he's not in control of all things, then, then maybe it'll work together for good. But that's not what the promise says. The promise says it will work together for good for those who love him. And the reason why God speaks with such surety in his promises is because God has the power to keep his promises in everyday, ordinary ways. Oftentimes we overlook this. One of my prayers constantly is, Lord, I, I know about 5% of what you're doing. Let me know 10%. And if I were just to know 10%, I believe it would be too overwhelming to understand how God protects us so often, so clearly, in so many ways. 
in ordinary ways, in ordinary measures, the Lord protects us every day. We live our lives in clear conscience before the Lord, knowing that he's the one who judges us. And when we trust in Jesus, his son, who has died for us and been raised again, then we can rest not in the wrath of the Lamb, but rest in the grace and mercy of the Lamb, who gives us promises that comfort us and give us courage every single day. Paul receives these promises and this courage and this comfort in the midst of great turmoil. And how often is it for us that he, he gives us the same thing right when we need it? Right when we need it. We live before one person, one God that matters. And according to his word, trusting in his resurrected son, we can find the comfort and the courage we need to live for him, knowing that not only has he saved us, he is protecting us. And he will bring us safely home. My hope is this morning that you can say with Paul, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. For as believers, that's what we must be able to say. Resting in Christ, knowing his comfort, receiving the courage we need, we live in clear conscience before God. If today... You're not sure about Revelation chapter 6. Whether you'll be running to the mountains in safety, the safety of Christ, or fleeing to them in fear, you surely can't be sure. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be protected. You will be comforted. And you will find the courage you need. So rest in Christ now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Savior which you have provided for us, Jesus Christ our Lord. And even as we prepare our hearts to sing now, God, may we sing with a clear conscience knowing that you know everything, you see everything, and we are trusting in you. And so as you look into our hearts, may you find people who are trusting in Christ with everything they have. God, let your spirit do a work now in hearts and lives. Move in this place so that if there are any who are still fearful of that day of judgment, God, may they find their comfort right now in Christ Jesus the Lord. And just, just as we sit here together, as we stand and sing together, may we know, Father, that it is your promises that give us comfort and courage. And your promise is that anyone who calls on you will be saved. God, work and move even now. If you're here today and you need to call upon the Lord, we'll have some pastors in the back, some leaders who are ready to pray for you and speak with you. We would love for you to step out and speak to them. Help us to help you find that comfort you are longing for in Christ. 
But surely we don't want to leave today. Surely we don't want to leave this room without considering that Revelation 6. Without considering what it means to live our life before God and finding peace, knowing He is our Savior, no longer our judge. May you find that comfort today. Let's stand together and sing.